From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm your host, Ryan Gore, and I am joined and joined only by Brandon Hill. How are you? Yo, yo, how are you doing, Ryan? That's the question. Oh, is that the question? I'm doing fine. I'm doing very good. <laughs> <laughs> Just to uh, give a little intro on ourselves, um, I'm a writer here at Central Source, a podcast, obviously, and for Squiggly Animation Magazine, for Paradise and Elsewhere. Brandon, do you want to give yourself a little intro? Of course. Yeah, Brandon Hill. I'm on the editorial teams at Central Source and OK Player. Also a freelance writer, OK Player, Central Sauce, Final Me Please, and recently the Boston Globe. Um, yeah, that's the whole, that's just, that's the, that's the resume. Anything to promote recently? I do, actually. So we're recording on Sunday. Tomorrow on Monday, I have an article coming out in the Boston Globe um, that is, it's really interesting. It's like a very like magazine-y kind of writer, like magazine article. It's about um, a resurgence of bingo in New England. Um, and I got to really like, I don't know, just a lot of like in-person reporting, a lot of like scenic reporting, a lot of like take this fun little nifty thing and like find the human element in it, like, you know, kind of kind of story. So um, I won't bog it down with the details on the pod since it's not exactly on, on brand for In Search of Sauce. But <laughs> you want to read about bingo? Boston Globe. Yeah, Brandon fully immersed himself in the world of bingo for this piece. So it's actually insane the amount of like small details and information I know about bingo. Like even on like the (laughs) the legal side of things. Like, did you know that the UK bingo uses a rectangular shaped card, whereas the American bingo uses a square shaped card? Of course, I knew that because I'm English. (laughs) (laughs) It's obvious obvious knowledge. They tell you that when you're born. Yeah. They probably do. Bingo's a big deal over there. Sure. <laughs> For me, um, uh, a bunch of stuff. None of it is music, sorry. But I am featured now on OK Player. Brandon gave me the uh, gave me the look up there um for a <laughs> ranking of all the Ghibli movies, not including the Red Turtle, because it's not technically a Ghibli movie. Um, yeah, uh, by how comfy and Ghibli esque they are. Um, was contacted many times by many people about some of the placements. Charlie in particular was not happy with Housemaid and Castle. I have a friend who was not not particularly happy with, um, or a brother who was not happy with where Ponyo was, but um, go watch only yesterday. It's the best one. It's up there. Um, and Valley, Valley of the Wind needs to be ranked higher. Yeah, sure. That's my, okay. that's my hot take. I really did like, like <laughs> with that list though, like specifically how you did it by like the comforting aspect, I think that made it mm-hmm. so much tighter than just like ranking them by quality. Yeah. And it's like, like it, yeah. Yeah. It's a different angle. I didn't want, like, cause there's a billion Ghibli rankings out there. I didn't want to be the same as that. Also on Squiggly, I have an interview coming out this week, hopefully with um, Magdalena Osinska, who's a animator and director at Aardman. I interviewed her about their short they did for Star Wars Visions, uh, the little animated short film. Um, yeah, that'll be on the Squiggly podcast and YouTube channel. So check that out. Okay. So since it's just the two of us today, um, we obviously have like a, we have a three segment show 
And we wanted to fill the first segment with something a bit different, just like a bit of a conversation. So um, because this is a journalism podcast and because we are all writers, uh, the the job of writer, being able to call yourself a writer, is like in an increasingly perilous position. And I think that's kind of like top of mind for a lot of people who consider themselves to be writers um, across pretty much every industry. And what I mean when I refer to that is that in just in just 2023 alone, the fact that we're not even halfway through and three what I would call major publications have um, at least laid off a lot of people or in other cases being completely shut down. Um, we had Gauden magazine. We had Waypoint, which is like the gaming section of Vice and Vice themselves, it's rumored, might be uh, fighting for bankruptcy. And there's Paper magazine very recently as well. You laid off all their staff. Um, sorry if I said staff before, I same staff now. I'm from Birmingham and London, that's what happens. Um, <laughs> um, so it's kind of a jarring thing where we're on this show and we celebrate great journalism, we celebrate great journalists. We even brought a piece from Paper not too long ago, right, Brandon? You brought that Vic Mensa interview. That was yeah. Jade yeah, Gomez yeah, yeah. from like Paper. two episodes ago. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's insane that... Um, the amazing that amazing piece person who wrote that is now out of a job um so it's not like publications are being closed because they are underperform or um how do i say the quality isn't there it's not the quality isn't there we have a magazine like Gauden magazine which is like such an unbelievably um important space for uh women of color people of of all genders um space for them to kind of develop ideas that magazine kind of acted as like um a thought leader for so many different communities and now that space has gone i know that waypoint in particular they had like a um kind of alternative take on on gaming journalism and it does seem kind of like these spaces that are a bit different that aren't just like oh the ending of the mandalorian explained or who is Tom Hanks's wife? You know, those those pieces kind of like <laughs> keep the lights on and understand why they're necessary, but it's not the reason why any of us get into journalism. It's not the reason that they, they don't push anything forward. And it sucks that those are the pieces that keep the lights on. Um, and we're kind of in this, at this point now where a lot of writers just don't know what to do because it doesn't seem like we're in an uh, industry that is... Um, um how do we say just uh it doesn't feel like it's the opposite of thriving yeah yeah exactly opposite (laughs) of thriving um so i think brandon you're more tapped into like the political side of where journalism sits um so what what when it things like this happen what do you kind of diagnose it as in terms of like the larger problem with being in journalism right now Right. So I guess actually something else I have to to celebrate, which is relevant to this discussion, is I just had my last class for my master's degree in journalism. Um, So this is definitely top of my mind, you know, like after racking up all this student debt, spending all these years studying journalism, it's now time to go and get that job, um, (laughs) which is Mm. increasingly difficult, it seems like, in, in media and in journalism. I mean... The jobs are there, right? But not the jobs that you spend six years studying journalism and rack up a bunch of of debt trying to learn 
to do, right? Those jobs are highly competitive, increasingly rare, like the jobs that really, you know, are the the kind of thing that you pursue a passion for, you know, the, the kind of jobs that get you into journalism. Um, look at, you know, the NPR layoffs, right? Uh, Louder Than a Riot is, their staff was laid off at NPR. And that is one of those jobs, you know, that's one of those passion projects. That's one of those things that you get into the field to really pursue. And, you know, those aren't there anymore. But I think on the optimistic side of things, like there are so many people who are in this industry because of that passion. And I don't think that those people are so easily chased out of the industry. Uh, so I think that we will get to see, you know, any, any time that there's like massive layoffs like this, a, a certain number of these people are going to pivot to like a PR kind of thing. You know, they're going to pivot to marketing relations, like business communications, um, because those jobs are much more readily available and the paychecks are honestly like often better. Um, but there's also, a, you know, a portion of those people who are in the industry for, you know, following that that kind of passion thing. And I think coming off of like, you know, the post end of the pandemic where a lot of people had all that time to, you know, sort of figure out stuff. Um, I think that we are going to see a lot of like more of these like independent operations or these like experimental media operations, like people who have had the time and the space to kind of, you know, go their own way of it. Um, and there's definitely room for that. You know, like it, it doesn't seem like that, I guess, when we you look at all the layoffs and you're like, oh, like, you know, media is in such a bad shape. But, you know, there's a huge audience and there's a huge market for good media. It's just kind of a matter of finding out, like, what's the business model and what's the right, you know, what's the right sector of that audience to win over and how to do it. Right. Like it's it's sort of like a a formula and everyone's kind of trying to figure out like what the formula is. But if you figure it out, like, you know, you're, you're going to get it. And it's just kind of a matter of figuring it out. Yeah, for sure. And I think, um, all we can do as a podcast that is surrounded about, by, about journalism is encourage people as much as we can remind people that their work is appreciated. Cause sometimes, you know, you, you write an article, you put it out, and there's just silence on the other end and it's difficult to remember that like what you do matters um and it has some kind of effect um and i think that's why that this kind of stuff does kind of put people in that dark place where it's like what's even the point and um hopefully yeah. we can kind of act as like some some people that just remind people that there is a point that it is very, very, very important as we'll get to more of the pieces we're going to talk about. Um, how much do you think AI has to do with this? Mm, that is an excellent question. Um, I don't think, at least like with this round of layoffs, it's kind of hard to articulate because the layoffs are so broad. You know, like the Washington post is not replacing their reporters with AI. Like they're not doing that. Maybe that they are, you know, cutting back on, um, you know, th the first things that are going to go are things like social media staff, um, mm. 
you're not even going to go, but just cut back because you won't need as many people to do it because one person using AI can have like a faster output or something. But, you know, the first thing, it'll be stuff like social media staff, like personal assistants, like, um, you know, people making like presentations, like PowerPoints, like training kind of stuff like that, or like writing tweets, writing decks for stories. Um, you know, that's going to be the first step to go. So I don't think that like, we're seeing a lot of these layoffs because these jobs are being replaced by AI, but that's not to say that I don't think that that's like a pretty immediate threat as well. Um, and it really just kind of depends, you know, publication to publication. Yeah, for sure. Um, I th we'll definitely expand on some of that stuff later on. Uh, another thing that's happening with just like being writers is that AI is acting as a threat, existential threat to a lot of film writers and um, screenwriters. Um, and you've seen right yeah. now the WGA strike. It's happening for a lot of different reasons. Um, writers just want a bigger piece of the pie. I think the, all they're asking for is 3% of money made from their show, their, their movies, to share between all the writers. And I think that's extremely reasonable. But another thing that's been suggested is that studios will ask an AI to write a script and that they'll hire a writer to come in and just make it readable. Writers obviously are against that, but they have said, if you do that, the writer who comes in should get a credit. And the studios have said no even to that, which shows just how completely unvalued uh, writers are to, the, to a lot of these people. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there just needs to be a, like a really big shift in attitudes to the way we see people who write this stuff. And the fact that there are people like against the strike, I think is absolutely insane. Insane. If you watch a movie, you don't think, oh man, shouts to the exec producer for, you, you don't know, you talk about the writers and what, things like that. And Charlie, go ahead, completely come and jump in because Charlie himself is a screenwriter and yeah, has good perspective on this. The one thing I want to just add to that is that um, there's different landscapes when it comes to screenwriting in America, for example, obviously where the WGA strikes are happening. And for somewhere like the UK where um, it's already a gig economy here. Um, mm -hmm. It's already devolved to that. If, if it ever was in a better spot, it's already that anyway. Um, so, yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a... For me personally, thinking about it, it's a matter of precedent that needs to be set. And watching Hollywood in general just respond to this so uh, so horribly and in complete bad faith to the point where they're not trying to just shaft writers, they're also trying to shaft actors as well. Um, something that Ryan shared uh, last night before we recorded uh, was that they're trying to, I guess, get actors' voices and basically just have them in perpetuity, which is basically just data yeah. hoarding. <laughs> and you know, that's that's gonna. And funny enough, the Screen Actors Guild, their their contracts uh, running out uh, sometime this summer. So uh, it's, it's going to be. Yeah. There you go. Exactly right. So it's a it's a it's going to be a very interesting year of a uh, complete <laughs> uh, uh, union bloodbath um in 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 a lot of fashions and i think we'll hopefully set a precedent for um everything going forward because um ai is clearly a 
what's the word, uh, a catalyst for a lot of these conversations being held. But these conversations have been a thing for, you know, since Hollywood began. So, and uh, yeah, so I just wanted to throw that out there as well. Yeah, and there was uh, actually a pretty popular Reddit post I was following of a guy who did voiceovers for a YouTube channel. Um, and he just noticed one day that he stopped getting, like the guy just like stopped hitting him up to do voiceovers for his videos. So he was like, oh, I wonder if you like stop making videos. Goes to his channel to check it out and finds his voice on new videos that he wasn't paid or commissioned for because he had done so much work for the guy already that the guy just took his basically database of previous voiceovers, put them into an AI generator and started generating, you know, just he's using that to like script and voice his new videos. And the crazy thing about that too, is that like, that's hundred percent legal. You, if you freelance for a publication, you've likely signed a contract that signs over like the ownership of your work for a publication. So imagine a point where, you know, you're the freelance work that we're doing for these publications is going to put us out of our own jobs, right? Like you write enough that you establish a voice for a publication. They can take the your writing that they own and feed that into an AI thing. And then, you know, oh, write me a story in the tone of Ryan Gore. Like give me, you know, a, a review of this new Ghibli movie in the tone of Ryan Gore, right? And then mm. that spits it out. And, and what can you do about that? We don't even own our own voices we don't own our own content we don't own our own brands you know all that stuff can be replicated and is 100 percent legal under our current laws that always take too long to catch up to new technology to be updated yeah there needs to be significant change there needs to be foundations laid there needs to be reform this right to strike needs to be significant because those one fifteen or so years ago that and we've just ended up in a, a similar place again so there needs to be a significant gain, change. Only problem with freelance journalists there's no union. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Like, yeah, there needs to be some kind of organization there. Um, but yeah, the only way well, to be even, to, go on. Yeah, well, even like right to strike is under jeopardy and collective bargaining is under jeopardy. Um, mm. Currently, I do some labor reporting too, so I try to keep up with some of this stuff. But the Supreme Court in the US is actually currently hearing a case um, that could make unions liable for uh, wages or not wages, sorry, unions liable for, um, I'm trying to use the perfect, this might not be the perfect terminology here, but unions could be liable for, um, profit lost during strikes. If this Supreme court decision goes the wrong way, like, so let's say you are a Starbucks, right. And you decide to go on strike and because you're on strike, you know, the, the pastries that have been cooked in the in the the Starbucks that can't be sold after three days, right? You go on strike for four or five days, um, so all those pastries have to be thrown out because they're no longer they no longer meet the health code. Um, your union now has to pay for that if this Supreme Court goes decision goes the wrong way. Well, uh, yeah, yeah, definite definite reform needs to be made, and you know, to be a creative, the, the only way to be a creative shouldn't be going from gig to gig. We are sure we should be allowed to have jobs, <laughs> and it doesn't seem to be trending in that direction. But to get into the meat of the show and to talk about people who are happily replaced with an algorithm, DJ Academics, um, Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> 
Tiana, uh, jump into the piece you wrote. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so this piece is How Did Hip Hop Media Get So Bad um, by Israel Daramola for Defector. Um, and this is like one of a lot of like really good pieces that popped out as a result of DJ Academics pivoting to uh, the right wing network Rumble. It's Rumble, right? I wrote that down. Mm-hmm. That was, yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of this, you know, commentary going on that's like, obviously you have, you know, one of the largest, unfortunately, personalities in hip hop. Um, and he's moving to a service that features, you know, right wing pundits, um, neo-Nazi talk shows, you know, real nasty stuff. And so the big question mark is like, how and why is this a, a fitting place for one of the largest personalities and voices in hip hop? Um, and there were a lot of, you know, think pieces, a lot of really good reporting done around this point. Um, this one particular stood out and actually Charlie pointed out at the beginning of the show. This is the first article uh, to be featured on all three of the Fifth Element Network podcasts. Um, so digging in the digits, what's good with Charlie Taylor and in search of sauce, which I didn't know when I picked the article. But fun fact. Um, and obviously there's some something that that you know, speaks to the kind of journalism that we try to highlight on this network and on this podcast. So you've got that, that news peg, right? That DJ academic shifting to rumble. Um, But Daramola points out in this article that that's one example, um, but it's not even the first example or a particularly surprising one. Um, He also mentions that the no jumper podcast has hosted Nick Fuentes, who's literally a neo-Nazi um, drink champs nearly hosted Andrew Tate, even though they kind of tried to play that off as a joke. Um, it's not unbelievable considering that they also hosted Kanye West during his particularly like anti-Semitic, um, rants. And then, you know, even actual rappers who get into the podcasting game tend to, um, somehow, and this is kind of the question the piece answers naturally echo reactionary right-wing talking points themselves. Um, particularly things like, you know, misogyny and sort of like grind set blinders on capitalism, right? And Daramola kind of, this piece serves as like a diagnosis of the problem, um, not necessarily a solution, but more of a diagnosis. And he, and he points out three main things, and I'm going to kind of touch on each of these briefly to just kind of cover some of the points here. Um, and the first is crumbling media infrastructure, hip-hop's global domination, and the lack of artistic and cultural literacy in the in the public. So crumbling media infrastructure. Um, this is not a problem that's isolated strictly to hip hop media. Um, you know, the larger crumbling of media infrastructure and the shifting of hip hop fans away from media institutions and into personality driven social media um, sort of coverage, you know, is not just happening in hip hop. It's happening in general media as well. Um, And here's a quote from the piece. So in this sense, the broader hip hop conversation is being pulled to the right by not just the same sinister incentives, but the same algorithms currently doing that work everywhere else. Uh, The second point, hip hop's global domination. Um, Another quote from the piece. How can an art form remain punk and revolutionary while also being the hottest genre in music for decades? Rappers are worth near billions of dollars. They are the establishment now and the biggest stars spend their time gallivanting with the wealthiest white elite. So the growth of audience size has definitely caused some of it. Um, and not just the dilution of the media, but the music as well. And I'm going to draw kind of a parallel here. So if you think about, you know, the earliest 
hip-hop going mainstream is like you know early 90s uh, late 80s um, and if you think about how at that time period that mainstream white media critiqued hip-hop um, and even a lot of the ways that they still do today um, you know is the the typical you know glorification of drugs sex violence um, you know they they looked at it as bragging about a lifestyle that they hated ignoring that the culture of that genre was all about things like truth to power um drawing attention to the struggles of the inner city that white america didn't want to talk about and uh, all while finding ways to maintain pride in self community and art but as the genre grows in popularity the establishment sort of goes wow like i guess um black artists doing drugs sex and violence sells so now hip-hop as a genre is a global force and it's sort of like these establishment like people trying to get the slice of the pie have held a focus group where they've asked like a bunch of white kids with no connection to the culture what do you guys like about hip-hop and the response is what they've sort of been conditioned to respond with what they've been told that hip-hop is right drugs sex violence and then they go okay great let's make that like that's how we get our slice of the pie um so it's 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 this it's this shift where like the genre has sort of been separated from the culture in a way and it's the separation has become like a game of telephone, right? It's like we're selling this to 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 what people perceive is hip hop, right? The people who have no knowledge of it and no connection to it. We're selling them what they think it is, you know? Um, obviously, there's like some single specific examples you can point out. Like the biggest one that comes to mind is Takashi 69 Like his everything about like his marketing, his music literally is like let's sell to kids what they think hip-hop is like why their parents don't like it right that's literally what they're selling uh, and then the third point um in the article discussed here is artistic and cultural literacy um a quote here is despite its punk roots it has always gloried in gloried in conservative ideas i feel like that might be sick i think i might have misspelled might be glorified um, but despite its punk roots it has always gloried in conservative ideas about women masculinity, homosexuality, and wealth accumulation. Combine that with the average fan's inability to interpret a rap song or any media really in anything but the most literal way or to understand hip-hop culture as anything other than a reality show about gangbangers, and you have an audience that's primed to be led down a reactionary path. And I'm going to return to that quote here in a bit, um, but I wanted to open up the conversation with, you know, this article being like a diagnosis of the problem, but not really like touching on a solution um you know i just wanted to ask what you know what do you think is a solution based on kind of the diagnosis here um we kind of you know started off the podcast talking about the future of media and just media climate in general um so we're already kind of primed for this conversation but you know what do you think based on this diagnosis like what would you like to see what is the solution or just you know kind of use that as a jumping off point yeah um yeah, well, first of all, I don't think every article has to have a solution. That's not, I know that's not what you're saying. Um, um, right, yeah, yeah. A yeah. Di yeah, a diagnosis is perfectly fine um, because it, just having the conversation is enough. And I like to say, like I always say, pieces like this, it's writing stuff that's such, it's such a heavy topic that can make you so infuriated. So to get such a um, cohesive, structured article out of it is always admirable for me because I don't know how you just don't go off and start rambling. Even making the notes for this, I just, it was just a, it's just a ramble on my screen right now that I'll just pick out of because it's infuriating stuff. Um, in terms of a solution, I don't, 
it just takes a lot of undoing the stuff that's been done, right? So I'm just going to get into the spiel I have written down. <laughs> and then we can yeah, go yeah. from there. So there's, yeah, there's a lot of thoughts. And I have stuff written down. And if I don't do the stuff I've written down, it will sound like an insane person. So, okay. So like the key point, <laughs> the key point that he, that he made that I wanted to kind of focus in on was how he put it, like the atomization of journalistic structure and how social media has come in and replaced that. So the words mm. being put down by a journalist being worth less than some tweet by some guy because he got a whole bunch of likes. And as you know, like tweets of links to actual articles get buried six feet under by the algorithm. That kind of um, power imbalance has caused a lot of problems. And the atomization of journalism is also this thing where people think the only job of a journalist is to say what they thought of an album. And if you're a bad journalist, that means that you have an opinion people don't agree with, which just is not true in any way, shape or form, right? Like a review isn't the only form of journalism. Um, people always assume like, when I first started doing music journalism, and I'd say, oh yeah, I do a bit of this. People always assumed that I did reviews, like as the first thing, but as central source, that's not really something we ever really did in terms of like features and things like that. Like we didn't really have reviews and it was difficult to communicate that to people. So like, no, I don't really, review it like if an album comes out it doesn't mean i just review it like there's there's more mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's difficult to communicate that to a lot of people because i think the job of journalist has a culture journalist specifically has been kind of sanded down to mean oh you just give an opinion oh and that's why you go so far well reviews don't matter who cares about reviews and all this kind of stuff so and so music conversation kind of becomes a slave to social media algorithms which as we've noted again and again, pushes right-wing narrative and this, this shock value stuff. And so some attention seeking morons just jump on the bandwagon. Like they, they aren't real people. They aren't real people with real opinions. They are a manifestation of what an algorithm wants from them. And the algorithm yes. wants yes. just shock value stuff. It just wants people to say like, you don't get, a bunch of attention by saying something everyone agrees with you get a bunch of attention from people horrified by the stuff that you say which kind of is as complex in people where they just want to engage with that stuff and like talk you around or whatever but it's not really a thing that it doesn't matter if the algorithms all switch tomorrow to like a bunch of socialist narratives getting all the attention they would go with the wind they would flip right over like it's they're not real actual people with spines so exactly <laughs> that's no that's a very good point because these people aren't they don't just like happen to get to the spot that they do because they have popular opinions they're mm -hmm. shaping their content based on you know what the people want it's it's like i was saying earlier about like the slice of the pie thing and sort of like having the um the what, what's the term for it i'm forgetting it now um focus group right it's right. like they they focused yeah. grouped the audience they want to sell to and the audience they want to sell to is a large audience of poorly informed news illiterate people or even you know in this particular case with hip-hop very culturally illiterate yeah yeah so when we talk about a solution the solution comes from, again, 
destruction of capitalism because the only reason these algorithms are built this way is for you to be funneled into an advertisement like that suits your particular persuasion so without any motive for these social media platforms to do stuff like that there probably isn't as much clout chasing which it's it's insane that clout chasing now just means like being a nazi like <laughs> it's pretty insane um yeah. so when they talk about that that's kind of the piece the the part of the piece that I kind of hit on the most um so for the other two points that he made when it comes to media literacy i think that that that's like an education thing and 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 to be fair now that you think about it in your english classes you are taught to try and look past the surface of what something is trying to mean rather than what it's actually saying. But that's kind of dismissed by a lot of kids because it's not engaging with something that's relevant to them. It's always engaging with a book from a century ago or media from that's just so outside of what they see day to day. And you get, yeah, exactly. It's all John Steinbeck. You don't see kids that like apply that critical thinking because I think, oh, that's for books, right? That's for old books. It's not for a hip hop song or any song that I hear casually on the radio. That's all art. That, 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 isn't, that isn't taught. That kind of connection between the stuff that's taught in the canon of liter- literature versus the stuff that kids are actually engaging with on a, on a day-to-day basis. So if there was actually a gap bridged between like, oh, you know, that perceptive thinking and that critical thinking you applied for your English exam, well, that can also be applied to this Kendrick Lamar song, like make that connection, right? Um, yeah, so like Charlie has been saying, he learned media literacy in his media classes, probably at A-level, I'm guessing, um, which is an optional thing in this country. You don't have to do. At GCSE, you learn century-old books. So... Yeah, as far as vision for that, I'd say kind of going that route. Um, what was the other point that you made? Those are two. Um, the so, so social media and media literacy. Yeah, I said media literacy. I said journalism falling apart, and the other one was just social media. Was it? Oh, um, yeah. It's sorry. Let me recap them. Crumbling media infrastructure. Hip hop's global domination. That's the one you missed. Right. Hip hop's global. So yeah. how how it affects culture now that like you know how how can you be anti-establishment when you are the establishment when you become the establishment? Mm-hmm. And I think it's really like there's such a, a segmenting, right? And it comes to kind of what I was saying about like the separation of hip hop the genre from hip hop the culture. Like nowadays, sure. it almost seems like when you when when you refer to hip hop, are you referring to the music or are you referring to the culture? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How do you combat that? That's fascinating. Um, because I think we've all been at a stage where we have celebrated the fact that hip hop has gotten so big. Um, but I think from like mainstream audiences, it's less of an appreciation of hip hop and more of a, I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of stumped on that, to be honest, because I don't know if there is a solution to that. Right, because there's so many, you know, the you think music industry, like from the economic standpoint, is always driven by the younger generations. And mm-hmm. you have, you know, the vast majority of kids aren't growing up 
with that culture or growing up in a place where they're taught that culture, like, right. They're just receiving the music. They're receiving, you know, the six, nine song, the six, the TikTok, like, yeah. and that is like, they're, Oh, this is what hip hop is. This is, and then this becomes what they expect from hip hop. Right. They don't, they don't see the, you know, the, the NWAs, the Tupacs, like, you know, they, they don't make that connection. And that, that actually is where kind of my solution comes you know when i posed that question okay. was like what is the you know what is the solution to this diagnosis like how do you what do we what do you prescribe um and i think this article in itself is a solution in, in a large way i think that anytime that someone um sits down and writes an article that speaks to the culture they chip away at that lack of media and cultural literacy right that's really that you know that's what that's what all that's what we're all doing all like all these cultural journalists like we are putting content out there that might even seem like oh wow this is just like chipping away at the block like you know this this article is not going to destroy dj academics fan base right it's not a hit piece it's not gonna have that kind of effect but any effect is an effect because you don't have to like suddenly like make this big change and this big pivot and like we we've solved the problem and we're and we're turning away from it and it's all fixed now um it's a slow thing you know it it is it is moving culture right and it's just trying to slowly move the culture into the right direction um and it's it drew my attention specifically that this article pointed out that he refers to it literally as the main problem uh being the cultural and media literacy because even if, you know, we look at this issue outside of just hip hop media and we look at like the wider like disinformation problem, um, no amount of good journalism ever reduces the amount of bad journalism. Right. There's always going to yep. be um, a profit motive and a profit incentive to just put out shit that you're going to make money on. Right. There's always going to be that. So the only way to change that is to make that stuff not profitable, right? It's to make the disinformation, make the trash news, make it less profitable, and then people won't do it. And the only way you make that less profitable uh, is by having a more media and news literate public who is able to see that mm. it's bullshit, right? Like once you see that it's that it sucks, you stop spending your attention on it, you stop spending your time on it, and then it doesn't make money, right? And so that is, you know, the solution to that from a mainstream media standpoint is you know teach kids news literacy right that doesn't solve the problem for the current generation it doesn't solve the problem sure. for even the next generation right but it's slowly kind of chipping away at that block and moving the culture to the point where eventually like you know if if if, if a kid who is interested in hip-hop and goes to learn more about hip-hop is confronted with, you know, sees DJ Academics, DJ Vlad, the No Jumper podcast. If that's mm -hmm. the kind of content they're getting, that's going to continue to be the impression that they have of hip hop. And it's going to continue to be what they expect from hip hop. But if a kid, you know, finds hip hop, it's like, wow, this is interesting. Let me find out more about this. And they read, you know, even one Andre G article. Like yeah. suddenly the rest of that stuff starts to look like shit. Right. Yeah. It only takes that one. It only takes that one endpoint. It only takes that one bit of like, you know, cultural connection or or literacy or education. And then the rest of the stuff isn't as effective. Right. So even like, 
given the state of the media atmosphere, you know, being a cultural journal- journalist um, kind of feels like taking a beating right now. Like you might feel like, oh, like it's not making an impact. It's not getting out there. Like, you know, that that article I spent so much time on, I put so much heart in, didn't go viral. Right. It doesn't have to. It doesn't need to. It just needs to hit a couple at the right time, at the right point. Right. And it, and it's the body of work over time. You know, a lot of these really like reactionary kind of individual person, like they're maybe I'm being optimistic here, but their career might just be kind of like a flare in the bucket. Right. It's really bright and really short, Mm -hmm. but a strong cultural journalist putting out work over 50 years. Like you've done so much in that time period. You've had such an impact. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Who knew journalism was important, guys? I think we've all learned something. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so that was How Did Hip Hop Media Get So Bad by Israel Daramola for Defector. Uh, yeah, let's move on to the piece that I bought. So yeah, we didn't really plan it this way, I guess, from the start, because like I said, I um, I said I bought this piece first, then Brandon, you bought your piece, and then we decided to do the chat at the start. But I think it makes sense that we end on something a bit more light and a bit more <laughs> uh, a bit more in search of source in the fact, in the sense that I've been listening to an artist a lot, so I wanted to bring an article about that artist, an interview with that artist, mm-hmm. um, which is definitely forms the bedrock of <laughs> a lot of the stuff we do in the show, and it's great. Um, so this is Justin Herberts gives everything to his movie scores, and he's not going to stop by Katie Rich for Vanity Fair. And yeah, I brought this piece because I don't think I got one. I really like Justin Herberts' music. Um, he works mainly with the director Damien Chazelle. But to movies like Whiplash, La La Land, and most recently Babylon, as well as First Man, uh, all movies that I love. I haven't seen First Man yet, actually, but the other three movies that I absolutely love, and the music for them is always like immediately I go download it as soon as possible because it, it's really lovely stuff. Um, and I don't think we've ever brought something that details the creation of movie scores. Um, <laughs> And I wanted to highlight Justin in particular because I love his work and he has a really interesting relationship with Damien Chazelle. It's quite rare, as far as I know, to get pairs of writers and composers like this who kind of inform each other's work. Usually a music, a movie is made and then they go to, and the director talks to a composer and says, have a look at these scenes. This is the kind of vibe I want. Let scenes inspire you. Go ahead, make the music now that the movie's kind of done or here's the daily for the scene or you know we've shot this thing go do it um i love how music forms the foundation of what damien chazelle does with his films and how his character's obsession with music matches his own because obsession is kind of a theme throughout all of his films and um obsession with music in particular um almost in every one of his movies there's a character who is trying to make music work for them and um obsession is a theme for justin as well through this interview he kind of talks about basically killing himself over every single movie that he works on um and uh as you move on from one movie to the next the obsession kind of runs deeper and it comes at like an even greater personal sacrifice you know he talks about how 
he spends like all night in the studio tweaking like a sax solo in the most minute ways trying to just get it exactly right for how he wants it and that's another thing when you're creating a movie score it's very rare that you do it alone you usually need to write the music and then conduct an orchestra which is different to making like an album where conceivably a lot of it can just be done in your bedroom which is something we see more and more with like more contemporary artists um so yeah i'll leave it off to you brandon how familiar are you with justin Hurwitz's work and yeah what do you think of the interview yeah not familiar at all actually i haven't seen any of these films <laughs> but um it is it is really cool to see like like you said it's the key of this piece really is like the relationship dynamic kind of um in addition to like a lot of behind the scenes for like the making of a film score but you don't really think too often about um a director composer relationship you know you all we get all the time we get the um i'm trying to think of an example and it's not coming to my mind you one of you can probably fill one in but you get the the director actor relationship right um, you, so you so hear about that all the time like yeah exactly like you get that sort of um like oh that's always the go-to and you know they build off each other and they play off each other and they make their stuff great and, but this is a totally like different side of that kind of relationship in filmmaking um and it's really cool to kind of get that um i like how you get like the piece presented you know one film at a time as well um mm -hmm. it, 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 it's a really like good way to kind of organize the piece but also like organize the thoughts of the interview subject as well right like let's start here and keep it focused and then let's go here and keep it focused yeah, I thought the interview is really great. Uh, the structure of the interview is really great too. Being able to tell the arc of a career through an interview is actually really difficult because, as a journalist, you kind of just want to mm. go with the flow of the conversation, and that could sprawl to any point. Um, so you don't you don't know where the convo is going to be headed. But I think Katie either she did a really good job of like directing the interview down a set path or she managed to get quotes that were all over the place and kind of put them together into a cohesive structure. Both of both of which I think are very, very, very impressive. Um, Cause yeah, it's, oh man, like doing an interview and just having like a, a frame in your mind of where you wanna go. And then the first question you ask, they answer a completely different question on the other side of the document and it's like, Okay, oh, I had yeah, to spend yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> Happened to me recently. It was like, that's fine. Like, I love it. And then it all goes but to shit. It all kind of, yeah, exactly. Your, your, your structure you had in your head is compromised, and maybe the piece doesn't end up being exactly what you wanted because you just can't get this subject to focus. Um, but I think, yeah, th that's very apparent here that either that Kater did a really good job in the post, like in the edit, or in the interview itself. Um, um, yeah. I think Brandon, you should definitely listen. There's to also, this. yeah, go on. I yeah, I definitely. Should. I need. I mean, I need new. <laughs> I need new films to watch. I just don't watch as much movies as I used to. I need to get more time to watch movies. But there's also sort of this theme as well of um, between these different movies, like the. I don't think impact is the right word, but like the recognition. That's the right word. Um, the different like levels of recognition that the different soundtracks receive, um, and sort of like how the artist themselves has interpreted that recognition like based on 
you know, the process of creating the soundtrack. And so you get this kind of story that's told through the same, you know, the same relationship that's worked on the soundtrack for each film throughout the, um, throughout the piece, but then how, you know, how that relationship not necessarily changes, but like how that relationship is interpreted or how that relationship plays out. No, how it's, how it's like reviewed, how it's put back in context as they look back at it within the context of like the recognition of, of each piece throughout the story. Yeah. And it is really fascinating because particularly for a movie, like, so La La Land is a musical. So naturally you're going to have a lot of the music ahead of time. Um, but usually that doesn't go for the scores that are, uh, the scenes that are scored, uh, instrumentally. Um, but I think he mentions in the piece that the theme for the two characters, what well, the name Sebastian and Mia, um, their kind of theme was developed at the, like before they started shooting. Um, which it just makes sense watching the film. And I think that's such a a lovely way for a story to be constructed through a music and through feeling first and then through the concrete mm. writing and the actual shooting and the images. I think that's so lovely. And, if, and it carries over into Babylon, which is not a musical, but a lot of the music is diegetic. So Babylon's about... Um, basically in, in a nutshell, because a lot happens, but it's about the transition that the movie industry underwent between silent films and the talkies. And there's a lot of scenes where silent films are being shot and there's an orchestra on set playing the score for the film, which is the score for the film that they're shooting, but also the score for Babylon. Um, and you see these kind of motifs repeat again and again. It's almost like every film in Hollywood is using the same score, which is such a, a weird thing with that movie that I really love. Um, but yeah, there's no way to shoot stuff like this without having music first. And it kind of creates this viewing experience that I find very addictive and kind of like feels like an adrenaline shot where it feels like everything's just so perfectly put in place. We've watched so many movies, like, I'm not really a film score guy. I watch so many movies where the score doesn't really jump out to me. But every mm-hmm. single one of Chazelle's films, I'm like, oh, I have to go listen to that again later. Because I want to feel like I felt while watching this scene again. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing where, like, oh, I can tell the feeling and the sound came first. And the scene was constructed around that. Because the music listened to it by itself gives that feeling. And watching the film also gives that feeling. But so for so many films, you watch the score and it feels, you, you listen to the score and it feels like something's missing. You can't quite relive the scene. It might be pleasant music on its own, but it's not quite intertwined with the images like it might be. Like, that, like I love a lot of scores that are just like that, but it's always unique when I listen to one of Justin Herbert's scores and I think, oh, that scene. I know exactly where I am in the story. I know exactly where I am in the movie. I can see that image almost like I'm watching it again for the first time. And yeah, I think it's a very special relationship. You do get it in other places, like every one of Miyazaki's movies with Studio Ghibli is scored by Joe Hisaishi. Um, but I think with Ghibli, it's more about having a canon, a library of movies that are cohesive in tone, but not in tone, but in, in certain hallmarks rather than Joe Saichi's music informing Miyazaki what he wanted to do with the, the story. Right. Um, but yeah, any more 
thoughts on this piece? Yeah, there's a really good quote in here when he's talking about Babylon um, that I wanted to read because you mentioned at the top about how like the way that he kills himself over every single movie. Um, And so he says, part of why I work so hard is because I don't know how much longer I'll get to do this. So I kill myself on every single movie we make. It's not like Broadway or other things where it's always living and evolving. It's like we kill ourselves and then pencils down and it is what it is, what we record and mix, Um, you know, that's such a like kind of a different take for like, like, you know, film soundtrack. Like it, once it's, it's soundtracked and it's, and it's put there alongside those scenes and alongside those images, like once this whole conglomeration comes together, like it's one feeling and that's the feeling that it always is. It's not like recontextualized. It's not sampled. It's not adapted um it's not reinterpreted it 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 is that that conglomeration right and so it's it's cool to see how when that entire conglomeration is driven by like the the feeling of the music first like how does the rest of those things kind of come together and come into focus and, and come into the picture yeah yeah absolutely i think that's kind of like a a mission statement for what damon chazelle and justin Hurwitz do on uh with their films did Babylon win the Oscar? I don't think it did, you know, and I think that's um, it just says nominated here. Yeah, I think I don't think it won. I think all quite the rest of them front one instead, which is madness, stupid, crazy. Which Amazing which story. one of these films should I watch today if I have time? What vibe do you want? Um... Whiplash. Charlie thinks Whiplash. Whiplash is really good. Um Babylon is like insane. It's very long and like it's very maximalist, Babylon. And La La Land is extremely gentle. The plash intense. I might need. I might La La need gentle. gentle. Okay, <laughs> La La Yeah. <laughs> Charlie thinks we're plash. We're plash is really good though. Uh, uh, these all three of those movies are fantastic. Um, um I think Babylon's my favorite though because it's absolutely insane and completely maximalist, and I love that. Um. Okay, but that was Justin Hurwitz gives everything to his movie scores, and he's not going to stop by Katie Rich for Vanity Fair, and that does it for our show. Um. As always, please rate review us on every single platform that you can really helps us out um and yeah just a shout out all the writers that we've started out so far we had israel damarola for defector how did hip-hop music how did hip-hop media get so bad and katie rich for vanity fair justin herbert gives everything to his movie scores and it's not going to stop brandon do your thing And if you are a writer, I've got some bonus plugs for you today, actually. We talked about like layoffs um, and state of the media climate and stuff like that. So I just wanted to share a a few um, job hunting boards that I've been using and that have been recommended to me by professors. Um, So there's Media Bistro, um, there's ASME, the American Society of Magazine Editors. Um, There's a website called The Talent Ferry. Um, And then there's this great newsletter I subscribe to that's called Journalism Jobs and a Picture of My Dog. Um, all these are, you know, either websites or like most of them, a lot of them have some kind of like subscription service, but I think like when it comes to job hunting, um, you've got to be more active than like setting up your alerts on indeed or, or LinkedIn, and then just throwing resumes at a wall. Like that just does not seem to work. Um, so some of these like platforms that are curated specifically for journalists, um, by people who obviously like want to see journalists getting work. Uh, mm-hmm. seem to be like a more promising direction to go. 
And then there's also, I just heard about a new um, news company called the, what is it called? The Messenger um, that's starting up brand new here in May um, with 150 journalists. And they're looking to hire, um, you know, 500 more journalists um, sometime this year. Entertainment verticals are starting in in June and sports and tech are starting in July. Um, So check out their, I just like, shit on linkedin but like the only place i've found job postings yet for the messenger is on linkedin so go check out their linkedin um and look at their stuff there but other than that like our usual plug you know if you're a writer um send us your stuff we might feature it on the podcast we would like a diverse range of voices platforms um people on the podcast so you know we're always looking out for um people whose work needs a little more recognition and isn't getting it so absolutely hit us up so that is it for today's show. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening, guys. This episode of Researcher Source featured Ryan Gore and Brandon Hill of the Center Source Grave Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor of the 5EPN. Music for the show is functional by Basti. Thanks to Chill Music for the ability to use. This has been Essential Source and Fifth Element Podcast Center Production. Thanks to Basti, Chill Music, Essential Source, Fifth Element, and content coming episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. You'll see you next time as we continue our search for the source.